Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and I'm hosting you as we try and work our way through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Victorian pastor and preacher and evangelist. And this week we're reading sermons 87 through to 93, and our focus sermon is Sermon 93. That is a sermon on God in the Covenant. God in the Covenant, and it's from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, the simple statement, I will be their God. Now, before we dive into that sermon, uh, we've had a number of requests through Media Gratii, who host this podcast, that uh, for people who aren't on Twitter, we might be able to keep up with what we're reading week by week in terms of the daily sermons, if you can manage those, or the weekly sermon, if you just want to uh, take one particular sermon from each week's reading. So you can now go to the Media Gratii homepage. You can find that online. Just search Media Gratii. Go to the podcasts page, uh, the link there, and you will find that you can sign up to a Heart of Spurgeon mailing list where each week we'll send you the outline of reading for the week, identify the focus sermon, and uh, ideally we'll send you a PDF of that so that you can read it for yourself. But I hope that will be a help to those of you who aren't on Twitter or don't want to use it in that way. So Media Gratii, go to the podcast tab, find Heart of Spurgeon from the Heart of Spurgeon and sign up there with your email and we'll try and keep you in the loop. As I've said, though, today our sermon is God in the Covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, I will be their God. And this was preached at the beginning of August on Sunday the 3rd, 1856, at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark. Now, Mr. Spurgeon was a particular Baptist, uh, sometimes called a Reformed Baptist or a Calvinistic Baptist. Uh, He was a covenantal Baptist in the best and truest sense of the word. He believed that God had dealt with his people by way of covenant and these things came to their uh, full and glorious fruition in the covenant that was made with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he talks about this second covenant as a better covenant established upon better promises, a covenant so glorious that the very thought of it is enough to overwhelm the soul when it discerns the amazing condescension and infinite love of God in having framed a covenant for such unworthy creatures, for such glorious purposes, with such disinterested motives. And disinterest there is not lack of interest, it means not self-serving. It's a disinterested motive. It has regard for others. So Spurgeon here is drawing a sharp distinction between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works made with Adam uh, or the covenant made said to be made with Israel on the day when they came out of Egypt. So he's talking about the covenant which says do this and you shall live and the covenant of grace which is in Christ live and do this. The whole covenant is a covenant, he says, not so much between man and his maker as between Jehovah and man's representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. The human side of the covenant has been already fulfilled by Jesus and there remains nothing now but the covenant of giving, not the covenant of requirements. There's nothing for us to do, he says. 
Christ will work all our works in us, and the very graces that are sometimes represented as being stipulations of the covenant are promised to us. He gives us faith, he promises to give us the law in our inward parts and to write it on our hearts. So Spurgeon here is well within the mainstream of particular Baptist covenant theology, understanding the great work of God in Christ as bestowing upon us salvation as a whole, so that even what is required of us in the covenant is provided for us in terms of that same covenant, that the repentance and faith, which are our proper response to God and faith, as it were, the empty hand that lays hold of Christ and receives all the promises that are yes and are men in him, is itself a gift of God secured by the purchase of Christ on the cross of Calvary. So Spurgeon's emphasizing here, pressing home the fact that our covenant security rests upon God and his Christ. Because if there's something which I am to do in the covenant, then it is insecure. Though I might be as happy as Adam now, I may yet become as miserable as Satan. Now, there's some particular emphases there in terms of covenant theology that I'm not going to to go into. Uh, but it's this uh, this basic contrast between works and grace that Spurgeon is emphasizing at the front end of this sermon. And he wants us then to consider the great things that God has given in this new covenant, this covenant of grace that has now come to its fulfillment and final and full expression in Christ Jesus. He sums them up by saying he has given all things, life in Christ, eternal life, Christ to be yours, the heir of all things and a joint heir with him, and thereby he has given you everything. He, he, he's pressing home again that the, the great blessing of the covenant is that God himself becomes the believer's own portion and inheritance. This is the, the very pinnacle of covenant blessing. And Spurgeon wants us to understand that we cannot really exhaust the blessings of this covenant. So he's starting with this first one. It's by no means the first time he's addressed the matter of the covenant in his sermons. Uh, but this is uh, focusing in on the crowning blessing that God is our God and we are his people. So what does he want us to understand? First of all, that this is a special blessing. Secondly, it's an exceedingly precious blessing. Thirdly, it's a secure blessing. And fourthly, by way of application, how to make good use of this blessing, zeroing in again on this wonderful truth that God has declared, I will be their God. And before he gets into that outline, he wants us to pause and consider. Understand it, he says, and he knows in one sense that we can't, but God all that is meant by that word, eternity, infinity, omnipotence, omniscience, perfect justice, infallible rectitude, absolute uprightness or righteousness, immutable love, unchangeable love, all that is meant by God, creator, guardian, preserver, governor, judge, all that that great word God can mean, all of goodness and of love, all of bounty and of grace, all that this covenant gives you to be your absolute property as much as anything you can call your own. I will be their God. 
And he says, in effect, if I stopped preaching now, you've got enough to excite your joy during the whole of the Sabbath day. He says, just take that, that, uh, that spiritual honey, as it were, and roll it around your, your tongue. Just take in the wonder of God being your God. But because we're not always so good at that, here is the, uh, the pressing home again of these things. How is God especially the God of his own children? In what way can we say that God is the special possession of his elect? Well, he acknowledges, first of all, that God is God of every creature, that there is a genuine, real sense in which God is the God of all. He has the right to decree to do to them, do with them as he pleases. He is the potter and we are all the clay. He has the right to command obedience of all, that regardless of whether you acknowledge God as your God, he is still God and that you ought to obey him. What he, uh, he can command the homage of all his creatures because he is creator, governor and preserver and none can escape the obligation of submission to his laws. Again, God has a universal power over all his creatures in the character of a judge. He will judge the world in righteousness and his people with equity. Whether as sovereign or as a governor enforcing the law or as a judge punishing sin, God is in some sense the God of all men. So that every creature must acknowledge that God is God and their God in that sense. But there's even there something special towards his people that even when we're talking about these universal realities of man in relation to God, even there, those who belong to God have some particular dimension or there's some particular dynamic in that relationship which raises them to a different level. But there are other things, says Spurgeon, to which the rest of God's creatures cannot come. In other words, these are distinctive blessings for God's people. God is our God in a sense with which the unregenerate, the unconverted, the unholy can have no acquaintance. So then God is my God, seeing that he is the God of my election, the God of my justification and the God of my adoption. Once we have come into the kingdom of God, all these things belong to us. If you are a Christian, God has loved you from before all worlds and his infinite mind has been exercised with plans for your salvation. Because God has set his love upon you, therefore you have this particular relationship to him. And if you have now trusted in him, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you've come into that reality. It's not that it wasn't true before, but it's now that you have an experience of that. So that if you can now look back and see your name in life's fair book set down, then indeed he is your God in election. But he's also your God by way of justification. The forgiven sinner, the pardoned sinner can say my God without putting in any adjective, an offended God, an angry God, except a sweet one. You've been brought near and now you have peace with God and he is indeed your God and your friend. And again, for a Christian, you are God's by adoption. You've been brought into that holy family. 
the spiritual reality that you have a special claim to God because God is your father as he is not the father of anyone else except his brothers. So the the fatherhood of God, there's a creative sense in which that's true because he's called us all into being, but there's this redemptive, adoptive reality which is true only for the Christian and his spiritual brothers who live by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit in the beauty of holiness, in the hope of the gospel, in the joy of your God, in the magnificence and yet the humility of the children of the great king. It's wonderful, isn't it, to think of the particular relationship that God, by his grace and mercy, has given to his true people. And Spurgeon says, let's now build on that. The second point, consider the exceeding preciousness of this great mercy, I will be their God. He says God could say no more than that. That is the greatest blessing that he can bestow. I do not think, says Spurgeon, if the infinite were to stretch his powers and magnify his grace by some stupendous promise which could outdo every other, I do not believe that it could exceed in glory this promise, I will be their God. And again, Spurgeon proceeds by way of comparison that uh, the portion of your fellow men, the portion of your your others, uh, your, your fellow creatures, that there are blessings that they do enjoy. They have particular kindnesses that they enjoy in this world that God has made. But they're typically pursuing only the things of this life, all their pleasures and treasures are passing and fading. Now, says Spurgeon, compare that with what you require. What do you require? To make you happy, you want something to satisfy you, and God satisfies you. God is all that you might ever need. But more than satisfaction, he gives you sometimes rapturous delight a very sea of bliss, a very ocean of delight to bathe your spirit in. You may swim, yes, to eternity and never find a shore. You may dive to the very infinite and never find the bottom. I will be their God. Oh, he says, if this does not make your eyes sparkle, if this doesn't make your foot dance for joy and your heart beat high with bliss, then assuredly your soul is not in a healthy state. Here's the experimental core of Spurgeon's understanding of this relationship, that for God to be our God shouldn't ever just be something that we say, oh, that's nice, thanks very much, moving swiftly on, but God is my God and he has undertaken to be my God. This is my joy. This is my delight. So that if all the world were taken out of my hands, yet God is still my God. And then beyond even present delights, there is true hope, the fulfillment of this great promise. It's the heavenly hope to which he looks. What is heaven but to be with God, to dwell with him, to realize that God is mine and I am his? I say I have not a hope beyond that. There's not a promise beyond that, for all promises are couched in this. All hopes are included in this. I will be their God. This, Christian, is your masterpiece of all promises. It is the top stone of all the great and precious things which God has provided for his children. I will be their God. Now, if that isn't 
the crowning glory of our experience and our hope, then Spurgeon's basically saying you don't really understand God and his mercies. I don't think he's necessarily saying you're not a Christian, but he's saying you need to be instructed, you need to be trained, you need to be directed to understand by the Spirit the glorious majesty and the infinite kindness and goodness of the God of your salvation who has given himself to you. And when you grasp that, you realize that really there's nothing else that you might wish. Now, Spurgeon says, thirdly, remember not just this exceeding sweetness and preciousness, but the certainty of this promise. Not, I may be their God, not perhaps I'll be their God, but I will be their God. It is his sovereign determination to save and keep his people, to bring them to himself and to keep them near himself. So Spurgeon says, we believe indeed that certain usual influences of the Holy Spirit may be overcome. We believe that there are general operations of the Spirit in many men's hearts which are resisted and rejected. People might be moved under a powerful sermon. Uh, They might uh, appreciate the the love that they see in the church of Jesus Christ, but they can still turn their backs upon that if they are only general operations. But here's the distinction. The effectual working of the Holy Ghost with the determination to save could not be resisted unless you suppose God overcome by his creatures and the purpose of deity frustrated by the will of man, which were to suppose something akin to blasphemy. When God says, I will be your God, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl becomes God's and God becomes theirs. We can no more resist him than the, the ant could resist the man. The, the, the magnitude of God's sovereign mercy is such that even if we are, when we are both unwilling and unable God makes us willing in the day of his power and draws us willingly, eagerly, longingly to himself. And this is so much of the sweetness of that unbreakable covenant. It is made with Christ as our representative. In him, all that we need is accomplished and secured and by the Holy Spirit bestowed upon God's beloved people. Now, says Spurgeon, Make use of that God. Make use of that covenant if God is yours. It's a strange thing, he says, that spiritual blessings are our only possessions that we don't employ. We get a great spiritual blessing and we let the rust get on it for many a day. He's asking, in effect, why, when you've been given so many blessings, do you leave them lying dusty on the shelf? It would be like getting the most wonderful birthday presents imaginable, never actually opening them, just leaving them to one side. What then are the particular blessings that he's urging upon us? Well, he's already told us that he cannot in one sermon exhaust everything that he's trying to address. So he just picks up two particulars here, the mercy seat and the delight that we should have in God. And the mercy seat is that a beautiful imagery drawn from the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the temple, the ability that we have to draw near 
to our God. Ah, my friends, if you had a cash box as full of riches as that mercy seat is, you would go often to it, as often as your necessities require. Most precious things God has given to us, he says, but we never overuse them. The truth is, they cannot be overused. We cannot wear a promise threadbare. We can never burn out the incense of grace. We can never use up the infinite treasures of God's loving kindness. But, he says, it's not just the blessings that God gives that we neglect. It's God himself. God has declared himself ours. He is ready to be sought by us. He calls us near. He is willing to bestow every good thing upon us. But how seldom do we ask counsel at the hands of the Lord, he says. How often we go about our business without asking God's guidance. In our troubles, we try and bear our own burdens instead of casting them upon the Lord that he may sustain us. God is giving himself to us. He supplies all our wants. You never want while you have such a God. You never fear or faint while you have this God. Go to your treasure and take what God is to you. Learn the divine skill, he says, to make God all things, to make bread of your God and water and health and friends and ease. He can supply you with all those, yes. Or what is better, he can be instead of all these, your food, your clothing, your friend, your life. God is in himself all that we might ever need, desire or hope for, and he has given himself to us. He quotes a child of God. I have no husband, and yet I am no widow. My, waker is my, my maker is my husband. I have no father or friend, and yet I am neither fatherless nor friendless. My God is both my father and my friend. I have no child, but is not he better to me than ten children? I have no house, but yet I have a home. I have made the most high my habitation. I am left alone but yet I am not alone. My God is good company for me. With him I can walk, with him I can take sweet counsel, find sweet repose. At my lying down, at my rising up, while I am in the house or as I walk by the way, my God is ever with me. With him I travel, I dwell, I lodge, I live and shall live forever. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that a, a testimony of faith and of resignation to God, of resting upon him. God is to me all that I may seem to lack in this present world. So Spurgeon says, by faith, go to God, speak to God, depend upon God, make God your son, make God your shield, make God your guide, go to him as he has made himself yours. And then a last note, not just prayer, not just casting yourself upon God and making your requests known to him, but use God to be your delight. God is not, in that sense, a, a mere crutch for us. We don't just go to God when we feel like we need him. We truly want him. We desire to commune with him. If you have trial, or if you're free from it, make God your delight, I beseech you, he says. Go from this house of prayer and be happy this day in the Lord. Remember, it is a commandment. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. 
Do not be content to be moderately happy. Seek to soar to the heights of bliss and to enjoy a heaven below. Get near to God and you'll get near to heaven. Oh, how many resent and resist or uh, even complain at the command to be happy in God, to rejoice in the Lord. And this is not that fixed grin and that mindless, banal optimism that, that we so often imagine happiness must be. This is contentment in God. This is resting in God. This is rejoicing that whatever may be our outward circumstances, if God is our God, we can delight ourselves in him. And that enables us amidst the sorrows and the pains still to know true delight in our God. So go to him continually, importunately, confidently. Keep going. Go eagerly, zealously, uh, press home your needs upon God. Go with confidence, the confidence that faith gives. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall bring it to pass. Commit your way unto the Lord and he shall guide you by his counsel and afterwards receive you to glory. And that, my friends, that's the first thing of the covenant. It is its crowning blessing, but it's its first blessing always. And it's this blessing that Spurgeon wants us to grasp. Have we truly then entered in to the glories of God's covenant in Christ Jesus? The, the fact that God, by his own sovereign will and for his own glorious purposes, has determined that he will bestow upon us that matchless blessing, that incalculable good, that uh, infinitely glorious sweetness, that God is our God. That's true of each one of his people in a way that it's true of none who do not belong to him. And therefore, how much we should cleave to Christ, how quickly we should run to Christ if we don't belong to him, how much we should cast ourselves upon him that we might have God as our God. Yes, it's the special blessing of all who are in Christ, all whom God is calling, all whom God has chosen. It's exceedingly precious. It is more than all the treasures and pleasures that this world can offer. It's entirely secure. God has uh, written this uh, this deed in the blood of his own son. There is no way that it cannot be. Having set his love upon us, having made himself our God, we are his, his people, his children, now and forever. And so let's make use of it. Let's, in essence, treat God as God tells us to treat him. Let us believe what he has said. I will be their God. And let us not only believe it, to rely upon it in our trials, to call upon him and to, to seek his mercies, to seek him himself, to make him our shield and our portion, our exceedingly great reward, but in that to delight in the God of our salvation. Dwell upon it today then, Christian. Roll it around in your mind. Meditate upon it. I will be their God, says he who is eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly just, infallibly righteous, immutably loving, your creator, your guardian, your preserver, your governor, your judge. All his goodness, all his love, all his bounty, all his grace. 
all that he is, all that he has promised to be and to do. This covenant gives you to be your absolute property as much as anything you can call your own. I will be their God. May he bless us as we remember and rely upon that. My name is Jeremy Walker and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.